everybody and welcome to the Maya Minds podcast. I'm your host George and here at Maya Minds we want to demystify mental health and make sharing mainstream within the exercising and sporting community. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Hello everybody and welcome back to the Maya Minds podcast. I am your host George and here I am today. Wow, that's nerves for you right there. Um, <laughs> here I am today with Rachel. Hello Rachel, how are you? Hello George, I'm doing well thank you. I was just saying off recording it's really nice and sunny today so I'm in quite a good mood to kick off the day. Good. And um, if people aren't aware already, you can tell from my nerves, from my little slip up at the start there, Rachel is a PhD researcher at the University of Lincoln, and she's doing research into some really cool stuff that I'm really interested in. And that makes me kind of feel like, like I need to impress and be, and because she's kind of like a hero to me. Um, so Rachel, as we've, as we've said here, you are a PhD researcher at the moment um, and you're looking into athletes slash exercisers and, and their psychological kind of, well, we'll go into it as we go on, but I'm interested just around yourself, um, just so people can get to know a bit more about you. I can get to know a bit more about you. Are you an, an athlete exerciser? Um, yeah, so I would probably call myself, I put myself in the exerciser bracket nowadays. Um, so in the past, I very much w- would have identified as an athlete. I was a competitive kind of distance runner from pretty much the age of 10 through to uh, my early 20s. Um, but in more recent years, uh, exercise serves purely a kind of mental health purpose, a getting out into the fresh air and um, certainly a procrastination purpose, if that makes mm-hmm. any sense, at the moment while I'm trying to write my thesis. So um, yes, it's very much always been a big part of my life exercise, um, but nowadays I'm, I'm really just doing it kind of for my own mental well-being. Yeah. Um, so yeah. What, what kind of exercise do you do? You do? Um, well, in, in lockdown, you're a bit limited, aren't you? I am <laughs> trying to get out for some runs now and again. We've had a little bit of snow here. I'm in Nottingham, so sort of East Midlands in the UK, and we've had a spattering of snow, but it's turning a bit icy, so I, I didn't go out on too many runs at that time. But I, I run, I cycle, I try and do a little bit of kind of weights, you know, strength work at home. But as I say, we're, we're a little bit limited at the moment. So mm. if, it, if it's just a walk, then that's absolutely fine. And I'm kind of in a space where I can take it or leave it. And that feels quite nice to not, you know, not forcing myself to get out there, but sometimes it helps, doesn't it? Just to get yeah. out That's really good though, that you're in that position where you don't feel like you have to. I am still 100% in that, like, oh, my muscles are getting smaller. I need to do some press-ups. And to be honest with you, I can't be asked to do any more press-ups. I've probably done, I've done thousands of press-ups during these several lockdowns. And if I do another press-up, I'm going to throw something against the wall. I would say it's the repetition thing is really tough for me. I mean, in any area of my life, but particularly exercise, like I can't do the same run. I can do it twice, obviously, but like not in the same week. I need a new route or I need a new, you know, I say to my partner all the time, oh, what walk are we going to go on today? I can't think of any new ones. I don't want to do that one. We did that one last Thursday. And, you know, Mm. I need newness so again that's perhaps quite tricky for people at the moment yeah and it's, it's something that's yeah especially because we can't move about but you're not really supposed to be driving at the moment either are you? you're not supposed to drive to a new place are you so it's just yeah you're just doing the same thing over and over again it is a, a real mm-hmm. kind of struggle I suppose having having someone that you can go on the walks with and stuff is, is useful and, and you can you can do that with people outside your household can't you as long one person as long as it's spaced yeah let's hope that in time that might become two or you know we can, yeah. we can do a bit more but 
we work with what we've got. Hey. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so onto your research itself, I've just got finished reading the paper that you sent to me and thank you so much for sending it to me. Very interesting. Um, I think just to start off, so you, you look into low energy availability and relative energy deficiency in sports, which we'll refer to as red S because I can't be bothered to say that over and over again. Um, <laughs> can you first just explain what those two things are to people? Of course. Yeah. So both a bit of a mouthful, aren't they? Um, and um, I've listened to a couple of your podcasts uh, recently and I know you. you've touched on red S. They've been great. They've been really interesting, honestly. Um, and I think REDS perhaps maybe some of your listeners may have heard of, but maybe less so low energy availability or people have heard them kind of banded together and don't really know what they are. So I think it does make sense just to kind of, um, you know, in a black and white term, just give a really short overview of each. So when we talk about low energy availability, that's essentially a physiological state of your body um, when your energy intake. So how much food you're consuming throughout the day is insufficient to actually support the daily functioning of your body once we've taken into account your exercise energy expenditure. So how much energy you're actually expending by doing the exercise you do. Um, so if, for example, across the course of a day, you're, you haven't accounted for that extra energy that you're expending in your exercise by perhaps eating a little bit more, your body could be in a state of low energy availability. And the, the problem with this is that over time, or if this is um, if this is to continue, perhaps across several days or a week, or you know, become into a chronic state, the body can actually start to downregulate certain functions. Um, and this is where, again, I don't want this to be too much of a science lesson, particularly as my focus is very much more uh, psychological. But essentially, this is what led to initially the female athlete triad syndrome, which again you may have heard of in the kind of mid '90s. Um, female athletes were kind of observed to be experiencing amenorrhea, so loss of periods um, and reduced bone mineral density. So stress fractures may be occurring. Um, and this is where also it was recognized that perhaps some of those female athletes were experiencing eating disorders as well. So mm -hmm. perhaps a psychological element driving that low energy availability. Um, but we'll park that one there because essentially then over the years um, that followed the triad, more and more research was emerging um, in terms of the effects of low energy availability beyond females, beyond athletes, and actually even beyond those three corners of the triangle. So it was, it has been recognized and it's continued to now be recognized that actually we'll call it LEA because low energy availability is a mouthful as well, um, actually could affect numerous individuals in terms of whether they're an athlete or just a general recreational exerciser, whether they're male or female, um, and it can affect them far beyond as I say, just bones and periods mm. and perhaps their, their eating attitudes and behaviors. Um, so that's what led to this term red S or reds, some people call it, which is relative energy deficiency in sport. And reds was kind of uh, coined this term um, by the um, International Olympic Committee, so the IOC. Um, and anyone who is interested in this area or has heard that they want a bit more of a kind of concrete understanding than I'm rambling off on. Um, there is a, a great paper, you know, that does introduce this by the IOC um, from 2014 that's readily available and you'll be able to kind of put what I'm saying into a bit more context. But essentially this group of researchers had identified that, as I say, um, LEA can impact um, both health and performance. So they created these two models to essentially show what the research was saying in terms of 
okay, well, it, as I say, it's not just bones, it's not just menstrual cycle, this can affect, uh, you know, immunological factors, so recurrent illness, um, immunity, gastrointestinal issues in athletes, um, you know, hematological issues. So again, we're getting into lots of big words again, um, but it can affect all body systems really, but also then the performance of athletes as well. Um, so when we hear REDS, we're talking about this multitude of different health and performance effects that could be caused by low energy availability. So essentially, LEA is this underpinning factor of REDS. So yeah. hopefully that's kind of made sense in terms of how they link. Um, and then just, I suppose, to now make that link into my own work, I'm really looking to understand that kind of athlete experience from a psychological perspective well okay but what is reds mm. you know how is it actually experienced is it actually a thing you know there is a lot of debate in this area is it an evidence-based syndrome well it's perhaps getting there but it's still very much um hotly debated i would say so yeah that's why that wasn't the most succinct answer in the <laughs> in the world but Hopefully so, that's helped. So in kind of layman's terms, um, just to, I un to check that I understand fully as well, low energy availability is basically this idea of, of not consuming enough compared to how much you're, you're doing, so to speak. Yeah. And then red S or reds is the kind of accumulation of all the things that can happen to you because of that. Yes, I'd say that's absolutely in a nutshell and actually... You should probably edit a good three minutes of my. No, own no, no. That that that, <laughs> that wasn't what I, that wasn't what I was trying to say. I mean, like your explanation is, is is needed and is is definitely correct. But I think for people who, um, mm. you know, may have got lost there a bit, like I I was getting lost occasionally, and I've read up on this, so you know, like um, I think that's it. To... I certainly get very lost in it myself, and I think that's where it, it does show that although this has been sort of a concept that's been out in the research area for about six years now, in in research, that's not necessarily a long, long time, and it's still such an evolving concept. But I think sticking to that, you know, those that clear idea there that this is red is this accumulation and potentially the um, consequences of a chronic cycle of LEA mm. um, that athletes or exercisers could experience. So we want to better understand why that might happen in the first place, um, and therefore how we could potentially intervene or prevent that from from becoming a chronic issue yeah and and one thing i i was kind of going to lead on to this later on but i think this is kind of a good segue into it now is the the way that that red s can come come about or um low energy availability lea um yeah. it, it it can come about from several different ways and, and as you you mentioned rightly you know eating disorders can definitely be something that, that comes into play um and maybe the the kind of debting behavior between eating disorders and compulsive exercise kind of creates this spiraling out of control. Um, do, you, do you agree with that? Yeah, I think it's a really, a really tough one. Um, and again, it, it, the more we get into this, this topic, the, the muddier the waters get, if that makes sense with regard to disordered eating and eating disorders. Um, I think it, it would be remiss of us to put those to one side or put you know, disordered eating, eating disorders into a box and say that it, it doesn't come into this whole REDS model. But in the same breath, I think it is important that we recognise that, you know, athletes or exercisers could very much inadvertently or unintentionally get into a state of first LEA and they might, that might continue for a period of time. But I think where we really run into issues and we see 
athletes who, as I say, are almost in this chronic state and they're ticking, not that it's a tick box, you know, sort of model, but they're ticking every single symptom that has been associated with REDS. That's where I really think there needs to be a question of, okay, but is there an underlying eating you know, issue going on here? Mm. Um, but I think what we're talking about here is very much a spectrum. Um, and I suppose, as you say, we might talk about my paper here, where it's sort of identified that not everybody who I spoke to you know, started off with an eating disorder or disordered yeah. eating, but over time, the environment they were in, the sport, the demands of their sport and their personality all led to this big concoction that resulted in disordered eating and compulsive exercise, mm. even if it started out as very much um, an unintentional and, uh, thing. So again, I've run way off, way off on that one. Um, but that's where it gets so difficult, doesn't it? Is yeah. We've clearly got an issue here that could develop um, and it's not everybody's experience, but I think there's more that we should be doing to identify whether somebody is at risk of that that being a problem mm. for them. So so it can almost be accidental. People fall into this low energy availability. Um, and I think the classic one that I've seen, again, tell me if you agree here, um, in people who are, say, endurance athletes, I know your paper was on endurance athletes, people exuding like, a lot of energy a day to day and then they they read online that you should eat clean in inverted commas here um, or you know eat in a in a way that's that's supposed to be healthy again inverted commas and they swap out their let's say very calorie dense pasta dinner for some rice cakes with cream cheese and or you know some kind of healthy alternative and they feel just as full there's no disordered eating there involved but actually they're eating 800 to a thousand calories less without even realizing yeah i think that's a really good point and again just that really real life scenario that we see or we hear so many people kind of like you say unintentionally getting into and already you've described there how something completely unintentional almost starts to shift into an intentional phase where actually now they're aware of what they're eating a bit more mm. they're being told as you say from different sources how that could benefit them and their performance and as you say this cycle perhaps begins and it might you know there still may be no sign of disorder there or disordered attitudes but in and of itself they're beginning to think about it more so they're maybe beginning to make more tweaks um, and that can continue but yeah I think to take it back to like you say that unintentional um, endurance athletes in particular as you say they could expend double or even quadruple the amount of energy that some shorter duration sports or lower intensity sports might um you know, exert, um, again, not to say that those other people in, in those other sports won't suffer, but endurance athletes kind of have these additional risk factors. Um, also, just one point on that one is that there is evidence to suggest that endurance exercise can actually suppress appetite hormones. So mm. some people will come back from a huge, huge long run or cycle or swim um, and just think, well, I'm not, I'm not actually that hungry. I'm, I'll have my protein shake perhaps. And like you say, they might, you know, it's not about necessarily what that food is, but it's not enough to account for how much they've expended. And they're not doing that, you know, for, again, driven by a disorder. They just aren't feeling hungry enough, but that can accumulate, as we say, um, and become problematic. Yeah, I remember when I was reading your paper, I read the, the bit, I think it was in the um, introduction about the fact that sometimes um, like endurance exercise can actually lower your 
um mm. i suppose what the, the hunger hormones or the, the hunger response um i've actually i've done some work in um eating behavior before like the psychology eating behavior stuff um, and it is really interesting and it's it's weird because I feel like you get, it's either one or the other, you know, so, some people you speak to and they say, Oh, after I come back from the gym, I'm absolutely yeah. starving and I need to eat everything inside. And then some people come back and they say, I'm, I'm still, like, I don't feel like I need to eat at all. Yeah. And I think like it's a fascinating area and I definitely don't claim to be an expert. I mean, I don't claim to be an expert on anything. I don't think <laughs> I'll ever get to that level of confidence, but of course that's a very, you know, there's a huge biological element there, I think, that comes into the psychology as well of eating. Um, but from a practical point of view as well, you've got to think some athletes might train really late at night um, or they might just be out all day doing, like I say, a long cycle, a long run or something. Um, and then, you know, they just get to a point in the evening where they're like, well, I'm not going to now try and consume all of that. Um, so I'll just have something small and it'll be fine because tomorrow I'll make up for it. Mm. Um, but again, here and there, they may not be making up for it and they don't realize until perhaps bang <laughs> something happens mm. and perhaps one of those kind of symptoms starts to emerge well first of all i think you, you're downplaying yourself as a not an expert <laughs> I, I imagine you've forgotten more things than most people will know ever about this kind of stuff um but <laughs> it, it's also interesting because uh, sorry i'm kind of going off topic here we will go on to your paper in a second um but I think there's there's there is some still some culture, especially within the community of people who are just getting into exercise and maybe don't understand the the nutrition and science sides of it. But the idea that you're not supposed to eat after like the amount of people that I, I'm like they say they've gone for a run and then oh I'm just I'm just putting it all back on because I'm eating a sandwich when you know that's kind of the most vital time to be eating. But yeah, that again it, it just shows and it you say it's off topic. I suppose it's all in topic, isn't it? But it shows how many different things come into the mix that can influence you know how much we are or we aren't eating and as you say individuals perhaps who engage in exercise because they're trying to lose a little bit of weight they're trying to increase their fitness they're receiving these messages of oh yeah but you you went and you did that exercise to burn off those calories or they're seeing these images you know how people have those comparisons of how much it exercise it takes to burn off a chocolate bar or whatever. And, you know, these are public health messages that can be very beneficial for certain populations, but certainly not for people for whom that then becomes the be all and end all. And they must then eat less that next day or burn even more because it's that almost that challenge aspect of, oh yeah, but I managed to go out on that run with, you know, I'd only had like one Weetabix and I, I felt great. So tomorrow I just won't have anything. And, and again, mm. my body will just, surely it'll be burning up like my, my fat stores. So, so why take on any extra energy? And I think that culture, as you say, uh, perhaps exists in a lot of different populations, a lot of different environments. Um, and some of the messages we receive from other places like social media or even the general media just perpetuate mm. that. So no, it's a definitely a good point. And I think um, that's why we shouldn't, I, I'm not personally a huge fan of red S. Like I don't think this is a an issue just in, sport is it mm. um but perhaps some of those symptoms are only related to kind of high performing sports or athletes because it's to do with you know performance variables so i'm mm. going off on one now but um you know this is clearly something that could begin or, or start with just the general exerciser who wants to get a bit fitter or starts going to the gym yeah and have the the tools to know how to fuel appropriately and that, that's kind of, an, I think that's an important, important message there is, you know, if you're listening to this and you're not a, 
an mm. athlete don't think you're just you're not this is never going to come up or can't be an issue for you or something that you need to be careful of or if you're i know we have personal trainers and coaches and stuff who listen listening on this podcast and if you're if you're athletes or if your personal trainer is just an exerciser at the gym they can also be someone who could be affected by this yeah definitely and i think that's that's what it comes back to for me and i know i've, I've kind of banged on a lot about kind of the background or the science but for me it's all about the individual and I think if you have and I imagine you have got coaches PTs you know lots of different exercise professionals who work with individuals and I'm sure they are incredibly talented and personable people who know their clients their their athletes very very well but it's getting to the bottom of well why is this individual like what's their motivation for exercise right now what does it mean to them I think that can that can mean a great deal um because I've done a couple of studies since that paper that I've sent you and it a lot of what they're doing in terms of their exercise volume or their energy intake all comes back to why they're doing their sport or exercise at that time in their life you know what's the priority does that does that make, make sense at all or can you like resonate with that um yeah I think I think the often the the issue in kind of compulsive exercise or in um in I suppose disordered eating is that the reason why you're doing like the, the underlying reason reasoning. So like, I'm, you know, compulsive exercise usually is defined by the fact that it's no longer the idea that you, you want to do it. It's the fact that you need to do it. Like I need to do this thing otherwise something bad's going to happen. So I suppose, I suppose coaches might get confused with all oh, my athletes doing loads of exercise here because they love it and they really want to do well, but actually your athlete, if you, you know, if you speak to them, you might understand or may, may get to, to know them and realize that actually they feel like they need to do this because that means you'll like them more or their teammates will like them more. And that can, that can definitely be an issue. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And again, where it just gets so complex and difficult to, I suppose, separate these things out. Cause also, yeah, you might speak to an athlete who is in that kind of compulsive cycle who will just say, Oh yeah, it's just because, you know, I need to train hard else I won't, do well or whatever but it has crossed that sort of barrier again don't really think it's necessary to talk too much about myself because it, it just goes into um you know the experience of so many others but for me there was certainly a point at which exercise for the love of exercise and for wanting to be a better athlete and just improve and do as good as well as I can tipped very much into no but I've, I've just got to make sure that I weigh a certain you know amount and, and look a certain way and I think it's you know it's catching individuals before they they tip if that makes sense and how on earth can we identify those who are on that cusp uh, I think that's that's my concern is at the moment a lot of uh, research in this area or a lot of education is uh, geared towards just those who are already in a, in a kind of clinical eating disorder who satisfy those diagnostic criteria. Whereas you and me both know there's perhaps a huge population of people in the middle who are not captured by these sorts of instruments or these questionnaires that are handed out who might have a lot of things going on that could mean they end up getting to that end point. Um, that's much harder to get them away from. Um, again, I think I'm being not very clear with this, but it's just such a, a, a complex area. Yeah, it's uh, hard to be clear with this, isn't it? Because, like you really say, it, everyone is so different. Um, yeah. And your what you kind of reminded me recently. I've been learning about this thing called a, a salutogenic approach. Have you heard of that before? 
haven't. That's a no, it's a cool, cool word, isn't it? So um, I'll try and put this in for people listening in terms that are, are quite easy to understand, but I'm not sure I fully grasp it yet. So um, we'll, we'll do what I can. Um, so usually research, especially into kind of athletes, is looked at in a pathogenic manner which is like you were explaining there where there's a disease so to speak for obviously a disease so it sounds really bad but you know so there's this having eating disorder and there's risk factors that put people into that so they kind of looked at binary you either have one or you don't have one and you have to sort out these risk factors and sort out the people who have one in order to get them back into not having one whereas a salutogenic approach looks more at stress and how to cope and mechanisms in place to move people across a spectrum so you know people are kind of getting closer to one and we need to come up with ways to help them turn like go back towards a healthier way of thinking um it's really it sounds really interesting it kind of it's just it's a nice word to sum up what you what you're kind of talking about there there is as well, because this is slightly off topic, but I have some favorite words and they both begin with S. So I think I can <laughs> add it to the list. So there's salubrious, which I love, which I think if you Google it means something like health giving. And then soporific, which I also love, um, which is like, you know, when you just watch that kind of trashy TV that just just really relaxes you and you don't have to kind of think about anything. It's very soporific. So now I can add salutogenic. Thank you. You're but welcome. I, I think to get back on topic, that does... I personally believe that this area very much falls into that bracket of, of how at least it should be approached. Mm. Um, we get away from that kind of medical model of let's get this pathological individual to recover in, mm. you know, quotation marks, but, and then they're instantly better. And you'll speak to anybody who's had any kind of mental health concern who have family members, perhaps who have friends who say, oh yeah, but they recovered ages ago. They're absolutely fine now. And on the face of it, physically, whatever, you know, they might present as such. But is it perhaps actually that they've just moved to a healthier space on a spectrum? Yeah. Um, and it, they have the coping resources to not perhaps, um, you know, decline back. back to where yeah. they were. Yeah. So I, I think that's a, I'm going to look into that a lot more, I think. Yeah, I've got, in fact, <laughs> um, kind of, I've had a, a, like a PDF book of on it i can send that to you um, no, that sounds really interesting because it yeah. seems what's coming through in my most recent studies as well mm. that we're very much talking about a spectrum as opposed to just this black and white you're this or you're that yeah so. yeah it, it's, it's really interesting um so we've spoken for a long time now without actually referring to your paper um very yes. much so to kind of um start off can you talk tell me a little bit about the methodology the methods in which you what you did in the paper the study so this paper we're talking about is actually something i thought would be probably published by the time we were chatting today um and it's any day now it should be published and available um for people to read so perhaps when this is all up and running it will be too um so this was my first phd study and i really wanted to explore that subjective understanding that kind of subjective experience of individuals who have um, experienced symptoms associated with REDS. So methodology wise, it was a very exploratory approach of conducting semi-structured interviews, exploring that experience of REDS. And again, people can't see me, they can just hear me, but I'm sort of using quotation marks because of course I didn't actually objectively measure um, energy intake or expenditure, for example, this is all to do with individuals understanding of their own experience. And these individuals who I recruited um, identified as having experienced REDS. 
Um, so that in, a, in and of itself, of course, required them to have a bit of an understanding of, of the area. Um, and that's perhaps why I got a purely endurance athlete sample. Um, but anyway, you've asked about methods. So um, essentially it was, yeah, a semi-structured interview with each of these 12 individuals. Um, and on average, they were around sort of the hour mark. I had a couple of individuals who, like you and me, <laughs> spoke for kind of an hour and a half, um, but the majority were about kind of an hour in length. And I wanted to explore how did this sort of, how did LEA begin, you know, this low energy availability, and how perhaps did that progress into um, symptoms associated with REDS? what was that experience once they were having those symptoms? So what was it they were actually experiencing physically and how did that impact them mentally as well? And then I wanted to explore where they were at the time of interview, if that made sense, if that makes sense. Um, so, you know, had they, do they deem themselves recovered from REDS and what does that mean? Or were they very much still grappling with the with the effects of REDS that they'd experienced? Um, so there are these kind of three distinct sections that I suppose my interview guide uh, roughly focused around, um, but with it being a semi-structured kind of nature of the interview, I very much let the, um, the participants elaborate as much um, as they could really, and guide that kind of process to present day. And, it, and naturally uh, all of the interviews did sort of then touch on those three phases, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, and when, when I, when I first saw about your paper, I looked at the um, the poster that you had of it. Do you still title the three sections the same, or because in on the poster you spoke about the fact that part of your results you split them into these three: the onset, the presentation, and the recovery. Mm -hmm. um, would you yeah. still say that? Yeah, because when I was reading it, it wasn't well. I suppose it, it was. I suppose they were they were titled in in those in those ways, um, but it wasn't quite as like obviously the poster was very simple. Um, so you, what you've received, because obviously the actual final paper hasn't now been published. So you have seen a preprint, which is the kind of unedited, slightly lengthier. I'm sorry that I sent you such a long paper. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. <laughs> but um, version of the, the paper that will now be published is that peer reviewed version that's really been um, kind of cut down to the, those key those key overarching areas. Mm -hmm. And you'll see in that one that, yes, they are really set out in those terms. And I am... I was very much driven by the words, the quotes, um, and the experience of my athletes who I spoke to. So it does all perhaps get a bit muddled. You see words like a body thrown into disarray. And that is my theme that encapsulated um, the experience, for example. But it still is that um, that section that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So in that paper, I think it will be more obvious. Um, but I still am presenting the results in those three sections. But as we've been speaking about, this is, you know, a huge overarching experience mm. that talks about, I suppose, just different phases of their life throughout their sport. Um, so I think it just helped separating it into those, but we have to appreciate that they're all linked, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, so in, in regards to the actual, the mm -hmm. onset for a lot of the people or that, you know, how they came into it, we've spoken to it briefly here about how um, one, one of the ways that it can happen is, by accident so to speak yeah. um what else did you kind of find or you know what interesting things did you did you take from it in regards so in to terms of, 
Yeah, no, with, in, terms, in terms of onset, um, as you say, you know, early on, I would speak to some athletes who just said, oh, you know, I just started training a little bit more, or I was really, really stressed at this time, or I experienced a breakup, you know, they'd have a stressful life event, and unconsciously, that would, you know, impact upon their eating behavior, and or their exercise. So for some, it might be that they, you know, just inadvertently eating less, because they're really, really busy, they're really, really stressed. Um, they haven't got the time to think about that um or others you know sport exercise might be their coping mechanism so they start just doing that a little bit more and that imbalance can get them into that state of lea but the overarching thing here is um it would start to result in desirable outcomes that even though they might not be intentional there might be some short-term effects from that so after that really busy period stressful period they lose a little bit of weight or they're actually feeling really energized and they think oh well what was it i was doing during that time um that, that caused that um, and kind of again spirals from there and um, there's some other factors it's you know like the sporting culture uh, again i'm just conscious not to kind of go on and on about things that perhaps have been found in other research anyway or again your podcast listeners already be well aware of but particularly with endurance athletes and those who I spoke to they just said how prevalent this culture of underfueling was so many of the um, the females would say well, yeah but I I was proud of not having my periods because no one around me was having them or it was drilled into me that we shouldn't be you know you're not training hard enough if you're having a period which is it's horrific that that these things are you know out there and, and are kind of myths that still haven't fully been busted and I think we are making you know some movements there on that one um but similarly you know you, we must train harder we're endurance athletes we you know it's always harder better faster there's always more I can do um and again another you know thing there is is personality again I don't want to like I say go on and on about things that people might be already aware of but we're talking about individuals who are very high achieving they might have perfectionist tendencies and you know always want as I say to be doing more or to be perfect and when you apply that to your training or you apply that to food nothing's ever quite good enough so there's always one step further they can go and I suppose that's what played out for a lot of the individuals is that one step further gets to a point where things start to fall apart a little bit. Um, so again, I, I don't, I'm really bad at answering things clearly, particularly in this area. Doesn't no, you did, well. you did great. I've, I've kind of got, I've got multiple things I want to <laughs> yeah. kind of go into you, you there. Jump in and, and grab me on those points because I do otherwise. <laughs> no, it's good it's good I, I do try to jump in sometimes but I, I you're not talking for like ridiculously lengthy times and, I, and I'm genuinely interested in what you have to say so I'm just kind of listening um there's a couple points I wanted to touch on I, I kind of typed up some quick notes whilst you were saying them um I suppose the first one I'll jump into is that perfectionism that you mentioned at the end there um in your paper particularly if I remember rightly you you mentioned how um perfectionism as kind of like a trait can link with like low self-worth and, mm. and almost become I would term it like dysfunctional perfectionism where I've, I've read papers before where they talk about the fact that um, perfectionism becomes self-critical where the person has this goal of I don't know body or or mm. perfect workout etc and when they can't achieve that constantly consistently they start to think oh i'm a bad person i can't do this i'm you know whatever um do you think that could be something that could play a role yeah. here 
I think it could, I think it potentially plays a huge role and probably, you know, I can't say probably again, I don't, it's not an area I've delved into enough. And I think God help me if I did, because I find my own area very difficult to kind of um, understand. But with that, I imagine if you were to talk to these same individuals that I interviewed about their sport and their exercise, about other areas in their life, and I'm sure this same level of perfectionism sort of plays out in their academic life, in even their relationships. And again, without making it too personal, I believe those sorts of tendencies in myself beyond mm. sport, which is something I have made a lot of peace with and I enjoy, I am ridiculously, incredibly self-critical in my, my academia. You know, I want to throw the towel in with the PhD every other day because I haven't explained things clearly enough. Even on this podcast, yeah. you can hear how, you know, nothing's ever quite good enough and therefore it must be my own fault. Um, and I suppose this, if we come back to the sport, environment these are traits that are actually praised aren't they they're kind of celebrated in athletes that oh look look they can push through pain they can go that one step higher or they can um are always looking to be one up from their you know yeah so it's, it's something i was speaking about uh, yesterday i had a, a meeting with someone um i was speaking to them yesterday and they were, we were talking about the fact that the amount of times you hear coaches say um or, or, you know, pe people assume that, or oh, to be great, to be an elite athlete, you have to have a couple like mental breakdowns or like you have to feel a bit shit and, and like be struggling. But imagine, like, let's flip it to physical instead. Imagine if a coach said, oh yeah, to be a great runner, you have to break your leg a couple of times. Otherwise you're never going to be elite, obviously. Like, it's, it's insane. Yeah. It's that same conversation that brings us back to things now around mental health, where so many people use that analogy now, don't they, of, um, you know, if I broke my leg, you wouldn't just, you know, it, it's treated properly. But when I say I've had a mental breakdown, you can't just stick a plaster over it. Mm. And, and we like, yeah, I think, oh, I don't know. It's, we do need to stop telling people that things must be hard and they must be painful and they must be absolutely exhausting for people to succeed because for individuals, who do have these perfectionist traits or tendencies, it, it's, it can be their downfall, can't mm. it? Because there's always more you can do. And I think just in that same breath, I don't want to kind of jump too far over to that kind of this recovery element you know, side of things, but if we talk about disordered eating, if we talk about just the physical effects of REDS, these same individuals might then try and perfectly recover, mm. which, is impossible, you know, because then they're trying, putting all their all into something that they don't really know how recovery will look. Therefore, they think they're always failing. So they'll go back a, to that. that that's something that, <clears throat> sorry, that's something that I, I see in myself. And, uh, you know, you were saying you don't want to um, take it too personal, but feel free to, if you want to, I'm happy to myself. Um, it, in regards to that idea of wanting to recover perfectly, and it's something I've, I've worked on it and I'm, I'm, I want to say I'm, I'm better at it, but I have to say recently, um, people who listen to the podcast will know that over the November, December months, I had a really kind of massive low point. I didn't post anything on my own minds, which is like unheard of for me. I've posted every week ever since I started it. Um, and I had this horrible moment and it, it was almost like I treated it like that binary thing where I, you know, oh, I was doing fine. I was doing great. And it's all gone now. Like it's over. Like I've, I've fallen back into my disordered eating, into my like, you know, self-critical behavior. And, um, 
yeah, you do. It's it's something that is really hard to to grasp when you're in it. But you know, if you listen to this and you are in there, it, I like to think of mental health is more of a again like a spectrum as we've been speaking about. And you know, it it's not it's not it's not about never feeling shit again. It's about making those lows last a little bit less time and making those highs last a longer time. And that's what's important. Um, you know, it's, it's a really, it, it's, it's such a difficult thing to, to grasp that when you're in it. I think I, I don't really feel like I could, I can add much more there. I mean, I can, because I'm going to, I'm going to ramble <laughs> on it. but I think you've really honed in on it there that like we need to shift the thinking to that. And it, like you say, when somebody is in that, there is no spectrum. You just think I'm either going to be better or I'm not. And I personally, when I was in that place, you just don't think it'll ever get better, do you? And then when you are, you do manage to move up the spectrum a little bit, you can reflect back and say, oh, that was really, really horrific. I don't want to get there again, but I may have times where I shift towards it, Mm -hmm. but that's okay because I know how to shift back out. But certainly, and I just want to touch on what you said there about that, you know, time where you perhaps didn't record and then you, you came back and you did a podcast, which I listened to, which I had so much respect for you doing. Like I have respect for you doing this podcast anyway, because clearly these are things that affect you that are probably difficult for you to talk about at times, yet you want to share your experiences and support other people. Um, and in the same manner, that's why I'm doing my PhD. I couldn't care less about the doctor title. I mean, I'm sure once I have it, I'll be very proud. It's pretty cool. It is pretty cool. But for me, you know, <laughs> I would never have done a PhD if this topic area had not been my focus and coming into it I think I was in a space that was very much oh but look I'm like I'm I'm the picture of recovery so this isn't going to affect me mentally at all Mm. I'll just be able to like share all my wisdom and my experience to understand others and help others now parts of that are true but the number of times I have cried like just in front of my supervisor on Zoom calls, um, in my meetings, or just completely felt like I can't make sense of any of this, have also been times where I think, oh, does this mean I'm not recovered, or I'm still struggling, or am I going to end up slipping back into these things because it's all I'm surrounded by? Like, it's making peace with that. It's going to happen. If you've had something in your past that has been a very difficult experience that perhaps was a result of habits that you that feel quite ingrained, those things are part of you so I think I'm going to touch on just one quote that I had I heard from one of my participants in my second study and she said to me well the past isn't the past because you bring it with you and I think that that helpfully that line probably stops me from rambling on too much more but if we move to a bit more of a an idea that mental health is a spectrum it's not a you're well or you're not thing like we can appreciate that we are the result of our perhaps past mental health struggles and we're also going to be shaped by perhaps future struggles but it doesn't need doesn't mean we're stuck you know we can always shift and I think that's really really important I'm certainly still learning um that and it but it sounds as though you've also got that appreciation now and you don't just think now every time where something does maybe go a little bit wrong or you find yourself in a dark place that you feel you won't ever scramble back out Mm -hmm. I think we feel we kind of know that that we can and we have the tools to be able to yeah that makes any sense <laughs> no it does it does um yeah and I, I do feel like I, I have the tools now to at least um 
the, I, I feel like most, not most days, I'd say most weeks I have, I'll have a moment where I'm like, I almost feel myself slipping down to that, at least ever since December. Cause I'm still kind of, I'm not so much on the, on the edge as much as I was. I'm definitely more towards the positive side now, but um, I still have mo- mo- moments each week where I feel like something's going to happen. And because it's happened to me so often and I've worked through it with counselors and, and just like self like um, help stuff. Um, I've got to the point where I can, I can spot it and be like, Oh, this is going there. I shouldn't do that. I need to go here instead and, and, and kind of move through it. And you, you get, it gets better with practice. I don't know about um, your experience, but the, the more times you slip and you go, Oh, actually I need to do this to, to get out of it. The more that becomes like a, an easier thing to do. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, I think, I think now I'm, I'm in the position where, where I can, it only takes me like a quarter of a day or like, you know, it takes me a few hours to, to sort myself out, so to speak. Um, but I do still occasionally slip into those dark places. And I do, I do have like a day where I feel crap. And, and then I just, you know, that's, that's the issue. And that's one of the reasons, like, thank you so much for saying those lovely things about, about the podcast and me and me doing it. Um, the reason I like, one of the reasons I want to do it is because I want at least one of these podcast episodes to, one day someone will be having a shit day on the go. Oh, George recorded a podcast with, you know, someone who, and they, they, he found that they spoke about this kind of stuff and, you know, it made me feel a bit better if I hit listen to them talking about it. That's what I really want. And I always try and refer to the person listening when I do a podcast and say, if you're listening, like this is, this is the truth. And, you know, if you are listening, it's okay if you slipped up. And even if it's been a month, a year, like whatever, however long it's been, you can, make those steps back no matter how deep you feel that you're in that I think that's really powerful that you do that though and you do speak to that listener because so many podcasts and like even this you know it it is an interview it's you talking to me me talking back to you Um, and I think that in and of itself is so helpful for people to feel like they're listening in on this conversation and they're with us but then also to actually directly address them and show that this is actually we're talking on their behalf and for their benefit for them to realize that they're not alone and what they're going through will pass I know it's a really cliche thing my parents sometimes say or my dad will say you know that this too shall pass or whatever but I do try and hold on to that because things do they can change and they can get better it doesn't mean they they might not come back or you might not experience them again but there is a way out and personally I would have loved to you know, have a resource like this to listen to when I was really deep in things. I think mm. it's easy for that, you know, for us to say that, isn't it? And some people aren't prepared to listen yeah. or to take in that maybe they're struggling. I certainly wasn't. I'm um, I'm still not today. Like honestly, I'm I'm like captain talk and captain like mm. speak and all this stuff and listen to people, blah blah blah. But when I'm in the shit, I'm like, I don't care what you want to say to me. I, when I'm in that like properly deep in it, I'm that, so bad yeah. for it. I think that's one of the biggest issues, whether we're talking about this research, this area or way beyond. The hardest thing is to tell, you know, we can preach to others a million different things. Implementing it ourselves is nigh on impossible sometimes. Mm. And it's funny because I think you think about a lot of professions like dentists can tell you to do your teeth twice a day and to not eat too much sugar. But do they maybe go home and and smoke (laughs) cigarettes and then drink, you know, have a load of Malams, Coca-Cola, sugar, whatever. They may well do because we're all human. We're all fallible. You know, there'll be things that we do that we can't always 
you know, things that we say to others that we can't always implement ourselves. And I think that's probably one of the hardest things about being human, isn't it? Mm. But, um, you know, by others talking about these things, I think it just helps us realize that we're not as abnormal or as alone as we kind of think we might be. Yeah. And I, the, the one of the reasons why, I, again, I think it's really important that we do talk about it is because I think people often mistake that because I'm that the, the Maya Minds guy, that I must have it all sorted out. And, you know, you're, you're soon to be a doctor looking at these things. So, you know, people probably think you've got it sorted out, but everyone has these issues and you're really not the only person, even the people that you're certain don't, exactly. they probably but, do. Yeah. Not to get into a massive chat about social media but that's another big thing isn't it and again we don't need to need to go on about it but people do assume that those people who are influencers that have so many followers are perfect do they have it all together and they're not struggling and then somewhere down the line we see that they've had a, a horrific mental health crisis or you know and we realize that none of that's true and none of us are bulletproof and I think it's just so important not yeah, not to be fooled by these things and, and think that, oh, I don't know, I'm going off on one again, I'm <laughs> losing myself, but, you know, everyone struggles and it's, I suppose it's how you respond, isn't it? Like we are in control of how we respond to these things. If you want to know a fun fact, before I came on this morning, um, I, was, I was nervous, you could probably tell. Again, I want to say the right thing, I want to be clear, I want people to understand me, I don't want people to hate me. Um, and I thought, oh, I won't have breakfast until after, you know, because I'll just I'll be more awake. I'll just have my coffee. Um, but also that to me was actually, no, Rach, that's you slipping back into things that used to help you feel comfortable and you mm. used to help you feel in control. Whereas you've just made your boyfriend some pancakes and bacon. They look really nice. They smell really nice. You are probably quite hungry. You'll be more awake for the podcast, probably worth eating them. So I did, you know, I went back and thought, well, it's not going to help me, is it? So I did. Um, and that's a very, very minor thing, but it shows how daily, like, I'm still going to have those thoughts. I'm still going to think, oh, but maybe I'll feel rubbish after that. Or I could have had something a bit healthier to make me feel a bit better. Or oh, maybe I need to go for a run later. The thoughts are always, I think they're always going to swamp me a little bit, but it's how I behave and how I choose to take that forward. I think that, that will serve me well and will help me kind of keep moving moving mm. on if that makes sense I don't know if that's a really crap example but I think it just shows how every day no matter what your struggle is things might come in and try and test you mm. but it's how you choose to ignore them or take them on respond to them and and fight back or maybe you give in and mm. and that's okay because you just think well okay next time I won't do that because it's not going to help it's I think it's just a, a level of acceptance isn't it and it probably does come back to this self-compassion and being kind to yourself and realizing that yeah we are all human we all make yeah. mistakes yeah. and things can always be changed i suppose yeah exactly and it's it, again it's a it's a it's a showing to me that um i again i'm i'm portraying the idea of just complete like an utter confidence on everyone else because before this i was nervous because i was like oh she's gonna be like so confident and like so certain what she's saying i'm gonna be like oh and as as people heard at the start of the podcast i even tripped up my words because i was like i have to be perfect here um but, you know it just shows that you know even even when you're so aware of it it still creeps in um and it's just a difficult thing but anyway we need to get back onto this onto this study uh, <laughs> um there was another point I wanted to pick on because I thought it was it was um, interesting and 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 
useful for people listening is that idea that initially people get a positive response, especially in their kind of exercise performance. And I actually yeah. picked out a quote from your, from your study that you sent me where someone put, um, Oh, you're, it was, oh, you're, you're, you're eating this amount and you're getting faster. So surely you can eat less, way less then you'll get even faster. And it's, it's kind of like, um, the way that I speak about it are these like positive feedback loops compared to a negative feedback loop. So you can start off with that positive feedback loop of, oh, I'm not eating as much um, and I'm exercising more. I've lost some weight, so I'm getting faster. Um, so this is great. I'm going to keep doing that until it gets faster. But then all of a sudden, your performance doesn't continue to go up or, or something happens. And then you start to think, oh, it's probably because like mm. I'm not doing this enough now. And I was doing before I probably messed it up somewhere. I'm not putting as much effort in as I used to or something. And then you start to think I need to do this. Otherwise something like my performance is going to get worse. And, and then you it turns into that negative feedback loop of, I need to keep eating less. I need to keep exercising more. Otherwise bad things are going to happen. I think you've put that in a really, really coherent way, actually. And to be honest, I haven't I've, I've heard similar and that certainly, certainly came through with this research and with recent studies as well. But I think it's only just really clicked in my head. But yeah, because people have had those initial effects, they sort of think, well, my method is clearly the right method. But then if they continue to do it and something goes wrong, they clearly think they're just not doing enough of that method mm. that initially worked. So that is so, so true of, I think a couple of participants are springing to mind here where suddenly some of what we now realize or they look back and recognize as reds they are seeing as the result of them not doing enough mm. and they think oh no i'm just i'm just fat and lazy and i'm just not managing to cover as much distance because i'm not light enough or um clearly i'm just not training hard enough you know they're mistaking signs of overtraining and underfueling for signs of overfueling and under training if that makes sense so and, and, and often yeah. as well that what's probably happening and something that i've experienced is their teammates don't see so usually there's some kind of secretive behavior around the restricting maybe so they'll say oh yeah i've been eating this or whatever and the teammates say oh so you're eating fine so you must just need to be training more and maybe they're even being encouraged by their teammates or their coaches you know not in a like negative way or a bad way in from the coaches or train teammates side but it is pushing them to be like oh yeah maybe I should just train more yeah I think that shows where science ends up brushing up against like I say like you know there is an element of science and again I'm not an expert in this area or to what degree it's true that you know leaner is better leaner is faster or weighing less confers better performance but you know there is an evidence base that exists else we would not have this underlying culture this belief or even these practices would we you know people wouldn't engage in exercise certain people if it didn't confer a physical benefit however it's how much does that how much space does that take up and how true is it at what point do we reach that plateau where actually things start to fall apart um, and as you say people who can't see any issue with what what individuals are doing will just think oh they might just need to start training more they might need more structured sessions they might need to start doing double days or whatever and but they won't see the other side of the coin and I think that's where we talk about things moving forward perhaps it's just an approach that needs marrying up let's understand 
the psychological alongside what's going on physical physiologically um whereas perhaps we've always got one person looking at one thing and not the other mm. that makes sense again going off on a, on a tangent but i think that's a really good point you make and certainly something i've heard from from recent participants as well of you know my performance starts to go down so people in my club just told me to train more or mm. you know i'm clearly just not motivated enough and i should yeah. be going out on that extra run with them and it's it's important to to mention as well because my, my background my master's in um, exercise nutrition so I, I know a bit about the kind of like performance aspects of it and it's important to know like obviously being lower weight is going to improve your like running economy and that's the main reason why people want to do it mm. but you know having that that lower intake it, although short term you might get that positive benefits but and I'm sure you probably saw it I think I remember reading in your study that people said that over long term their performance went down or started to yeah. go down mm -hmm. over over long periods of time that like consistent low energy availability is going to have performance impacts like like although short term it seems like oh I need to eat less and train more actually in the long term you, it, it is just going to result in so even if you're just looking at strictly at performance like I just want to perform better you are better off like not restricting and like over over training like to this extent exactly and i think where it comes into sports nutrition and again you you will probably have much more knowledge on this um, than me and and that's where i don't want to kind of dismiss practices that may well be necessary and and definitely take place in a lot of sports where some people can in a managed kind of well managed fashion reduce their weight or reduce their body fat for performance reasons in the short term um, and that can be very well coordinated with, a, you know, a, a nutritionist, um, you know, their coach and the athlete themselves um, in a program that allows them to still train well and perhaps do that kind of reduction in energy intake, maybe during lighter training periods. But if it's occurring when they're still doing really high intensity training, that's when they're tipping into that LEA and okay, maybe that's all right for a short period of time, but how can we guarantee that that hasn't sown the seed psychologically for that athlete. I think that's where I start to come in with my psych, you know, psych hat on and say, well, that's fine. And the team think that's all fine and all together because the athlete is happy to do that. And then it's their off season. Maybe they'll eat a bit more fine, but do we know what's actually going on in their head? And yeah. has it actually be, become something that they'll start to apply more often? And as you say, can become more, more chronic and a bit more of like a habit that continues yeah I, I think um like you say there are there are some like sides of nutrition where you do like you know you can helpfully have your athlete lose weight and and still and perform for performance purposes um but i think i think more it's around the the culture that goes hand in hand or the the ways that people communicate those practices to athletes so it's never like everyone, is, as we spoke about multiple times, everyone is so individual and it's exactly the same with nutrition. Everyone is, reacts to things completely differently, but coaches still, a lot of coaches, I'm not trying to label everyone, but a lot of coaches still almost consider themselves like a godlike figure in like, this is the, I've done all the research. I understand all the science and, and, and I, and I know that this is the optimal way of doing it. So you have to do it like this. And if you don't do like this, you're basically, they're saying, if you don't do like this, you're a failure. And, you know, and some, some coaches even say, you know, this is how I don't know, Cristiano Ronaldo diets and trains. So if you, you know, he's yeah. the best, he's the best player, of, I don't know, arguably he's the best player in the world. Um, yeah. But, you know, 
so so if you don't do exactly like he he does and if you aren't comfortable doing what he's doing then you're a failure you're not built to be the best player in the world and then you immediately obviously start thinking oh i'm not as good as cristiano ronaldo who else am i not as good at blah 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 blah. and just spirals and it's yeah and what you've again mentioned there is this like bad or good or this right and wrong i think that's what attaches to so much of what we've talked about is people are getting from coaches this is the right thing the wrong thing this is what the the elites eat and don't eat and from social media we're getting this is what you should and shouldn't have and this is a good bad and a bad a good food and a bad food and like you say it actually then links into this self-worth we suddenly think that we are a complete failure if we don't do those things or we do things differently and I must admit, not to bring it back to myself too much, but I, you might have seen I glanced across, like away from the screen. I looked over at my bookcase. Mm. And when I, the, one of the earliest and most kind of profound triggers I realized for my own eating behaviors and exercise behaviors as a, you know, sub elite runner at university was I, for one, was studying sport and exercise science, which often comes hand in hand with these sorts of things. You know, you want to know everything about everything. And I bought a book about racing weight. Mm. So already I'm being told there's a certain weight I should be, but at the back there were recipes, there were names of elite athletes and I was told exactly what they would eat and wouldn't eat. So, you know, it might've started off as really innocent or, oh, I just want to be like, get a really good grade in my nutrition exam. But it wasn't, it was, oh, look, I'm being told what I should do to get to a certain point, which will make me run better. And all I wanted at that point was to run better and get the England vest that my friends were getting. And you can see how quickly that can, as you say, spiral, because we're told you should do this, you shouldn't do that. And if you do do that, that veers off from what we're telling you, then there's something wrong with you. Mm. And then, as I say, you've kind of sown a seed there that if that person isn't doing what has been black and white set out, then clearly like, yeah, they're destined. Yeah. You're you're weak, yeah. or you're you know you're yeah, just a you're, thing, yeah. yeah. It's it's scary, and and the thing is as well, the actual truth behind it is that you know that like Cristiano Ronaldo or the runners that you're talking about, they have a nutritionist who is dedicated to to adapting things around the way that they do things, the way that they feel comfortable doing things. So you know they they are literally just everything's been tailor made to fit their schedule, the way they like to eat, the way they like to blah 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 blah. And maybe they make the like little sacrifices, but I can guarantee if they're doing it long term, they're not making huge sacrifices. They're you know, they they are. This is all being manipulated to them, and it and it's the same for you if you're listening. If you're an athlete, if you just because you can't stick to, I'm going with Cristiano Ronaldo again. Just because you can't stick to Cristiano Ronaldo's diet doesn't mean you're weaker than him. It just means that 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 diet fits him. It it doesn't have to fit you. Um, you know, so no matter how many coaches have read all the papers or the everything or says they've got 30 years experience and it works this thing or whatever you know it really it really is not made just for you i promise you and if you if you can't do it you're not a failure you're not a bad person no in fact it's your body telling you that you're you need different things mm. i think that that is the hardest thing though because how how are we supposed to learn what we really need or whether what we want is actually like okay i'm definitely still grappling with that but it's the best place to be is where you have a quick thought of, oh, actually, no, I'm really craving that, or I, I could do really do with that. And you have it and your body responds well, because actually that's what you wanted. And 
it's, it's a balance though, isn't it? As you mm. say, especially when we talk about athletes, there are certain things that are going to benefit them more than others. But if we alienate them too much by pushing out all these other things that as a human, as a general person, they enjoy and they, yeah, derive pleasure from, then it becomes very insular and they, that's where the guilt, you know, the, the self-worth starts mm. to come into the mix because oh yeah but my coach said I shouldn't be having that and you know again that's we hear so much about even in that paper where a couple of individuals said oh well my coach commented on the size of my thighs or you know and you know I don't want to tar all coaches and professionals like that with the same brush because it's so innocent usually and well-meaning but that's why we have to talk to the athletes and understand how could they take that on um how quickly could that spiral so yeah and it's such a hard thing to traverse and i'm actually in at the moment my minds are working with some people at nottingham university um to um come up with i can't say too much about it but basically come up with a thing that is going to help people uh coaches personal trainers etc to have those conversations hopefully um so yeah hopefully that's coming in the in the meantime but so back to your back to your study. Um, oh, yeah. The <laughs> oh yeah, that thing we're supposed to be talking about. Um, I'm interested in regards to the recovery mm-hmm. section of the kind of what you got out of it. Can you tell me about that? Another complete minefield, and this is where I really just feel like I shoot myself in the foot with my own research. <laughs> the recovery element is huge because once these individuals I spoke to experienced symptoms associated with REDS, they were all reporting a psychopathological cycle. So they were reporting disordered eating behaviors and or compulsive exercise. You know, they had become very much, you know, like defined by this, you know, I I must eat less and exercise more, or I must, you know, there is always more I can be doing. So recovery really, was recovery from the physical symptoms of reds but also psychological recovery from a cycle of disordered eating and compulsive exercise so again we've got it in the paper you'll see like there are uh, quotation marks over the recovery because it it meant something slightly different to each individual but it encapsulated both this physical recovery of their you know bodily physiological functions that had perhaps broken down or their their recurrent injuries they were having but simultaneously, it was this ongoing battle with trying to overcome thoughts in their head that were saying, yeah, but you can't, you know, you can't now start eating more and training less because you'll, you'll no longer be a good athlete. So it's, it's this constant um, state of conflict. Um, so really in the recovery, like it was, a, it was a huge area, as we say, um, and I, I do talk about this kind of psychological war zone because they've got one thought and you hear about this in the disordered eating literature, don't you? That we've got like a rational brain and an irrational brain. These results really reflected and mirrored that in the, but we're, we're talking about obviously a, a subsection of, you know, an athlete population who on one side, they're being constantly told you need to train more. You need to focus on what you're eating. There are certain things you should be eating. And on this other side, they've got, this physical like thing, this syndrome that has actually flown in the face of that and gone, ah, oh, yeah, that wasn't entirely true. 
you've kind of overdone it now. Um, you're in a bit of a pickle and you've got to try and get yourself out of it. But also don't go too far the other way else you'll be, you know, you're doomed. You can't be a good athlete. And I don't know if I've made any sense of that, but what they're constantly grappling with is in order to, for my body to function, I need to eat some more and I need to rest a little bit more and keep that going. But that flies completely in the face of their disordered thinking because they're, whether it's a clinical eating disorder that they might have kind of progressed to, or they've just got disordered eating habits. I say just as if it's, you know, not, not serious, which it, you know, very much can be, but those two things they're supposed to be doing for their health completely contradict what their disordered eating and their kind of compulsive nature are telling them to do. So it, different individuals would say, oh, you know, I've, I've recovered, but that is that I've, you know, I'm no longer injured. I'm running just as much as I ever was. And I'm, I'm eating far better than I was. But then you sort of tap into the psychology and they say, oh yeah, no, I'm, I don't think I'll ever be recovered from that. Um, so stupidly, I took it on myself to take that study forward. And my second study was looking at that recovery element. Oh, and it just awesome. further, <laughs> further showed how this is a really complex intertwining of physical recovery from the, you know, uh, physiological outcomes of reds mm. but alongside this psychological recovery from you know disordered eating an eating disorder perhaps and this almost exercise addiction going on so I think as I say we can't tar every athlete and exerciser with the same brush if we've got an athlete um, presenting with reds it doesn't mean they're in this cycle it doesn't mean they've got anything really going on psychologically but the chances are, if this is a chronic cycle that is continuing and they're struggling to overcome the effects physically, then we must, and it's you know negligent of us not to tap into what's going on for them psychologically. Yeah. Because chances are, if they're continuing to present with these physical effects, then there's some education that's being missed or there's a much deeper psychological issue that that hasn't kind of been addressed i don't know again if i've made any sense with that but recovery is like one of the hardest things i've been able to kind of uh, i guess communicate to you but also understand within the research because it's going to be very different an individual yeah in the context of reds it seems very much intertwined with what we would call recovery from you know disordered eating or an eating disorder so I don't know if that has, if I have managed to kind of communicate that. I think, I think so. I think so. So there's kind of these almost like, it's like a two pronged attack that you have to, mm -hmm. you have to deal with when you're recovering. Um, and often I think in your, in your paper that I read, you use the word cognitive dissonance, which basically means like the two contrasting opinions um, that you both hold. So the example that you gave was, you know, I, I should be eating more and resting more because that's good for my health. But at the same time, I shouldn't be eating as much and I should be resting less because that'll make me a good athlete. Um, and they yeah. obviously contradict massively um, and just cause turmoil in someone's, in someone's brain. And I imagine that anxiety comes with that and uncertainty. And um, especially for someone who has perfectionism tendencies, that must be really difficult to deal with. Um, and it's something that I resonate with myself. Um, and I'm really interested in your, in that second study that you're, you're talking about. That sounds really cool. Um, yeah, it's, it's the bane of my life. And I must say that's what, thankfully I'm away from, well, I'm not, I'm at my desk right now, but if I wasn't on the podcast, that's what I'd be, um, 
very much deep in at the moment is I've, I've written up that second study, mm-hmm. but making sense of that data has probably been the hardest thing I've ever done mm-hmm. because these two huge, like you say, kind of thought processes are playing out for years and years in, in the case of some of these athletes I've spoken to. And like they're all presenting on, as I say, this spectrum that they're continuing to, to deal with. And for some, it, it's got to a point where they've just sort of thought, well, it's one or the other. And again, I, don't, I, really, I know we're conscious we've been talking for a long, long time now, and I don't know how much you'll want to keep in, but there's this trade-off element. And I, I guess a question I maybe pose to you, because I wonder where you sit on it, but for a couple of the athletes I've spoken to in that second study about recovering, they are saying, well, that place I got to was so difficult and horrible. And that is the physical effects of reds, but also disordered eating. That was so tough that if it means I can't then go and compete at a high level, so be it. I'd rather be happy and healthy with a functioning body than sacrifice it all again to perform at a high level. And that has really consistently come through. Um, And I personally don't believe I could get back to a level and beyond a level I competed at in the past without succumbing to at least some disordered behavior or a bit of an insular journey that I think would impact my mental health. And I just wonder, especially working in this area and working with athletes and, and, and with your own experiences, whether you think it is like a bit of a trade-off and whether there can be really, really high level performance mm. without some element of ill health mentally and or physically. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah, this is good. This is like the podcast has been switched. We switched places. Sorry, sorry. No, no, it's good. Um, again, this is actually something that I'm currently working on, um, and is the reason why I read up on Slutogenic. Um, again, a thing I can't talk about on the podcast, but I'll tell you about afterwards if you're interested. Um, I think I think the this issue highlights the importance of early intervention work and things with people at a young age because i think a lot of these the issues that come along with it come around that culture of if you can't do it you're not good enough and i think i think from an early age everyone's trying to be cristiano ronaldo or trying to be lionel messi or you know i'm I'm speaking in football terms but everyone is is being shown that you know oh i want you do these things that they're doing because then you can be like them um and i think as well, that that idea of coaches being that the godlike figure, and you have to do exactly what I say because I'm the coach, and and my one blanket statement applies to every single one of you, and you can't go away from it, otherwise you're wrong. I think that culture that's bred from a young age and and pushes then into elite athletes, that's a big part of it, and it's way more complex, I'm sure. And there's, you know, there's there's people's actual again i'm using the word salutogenic but these salutogenic foundations that people have um, acquired to them throughout their life through trauma or childhood experiences etc that have developed their ability to deal with stress and deal and cope with things um and obviously if people have more well managed to um deal with difficult circumstances then maybe they're more likely to be able to have a positive mindset as well as um or like positive mental health as well as get to elite standard i'm sorry i am rambling but it is just a really difficult question to ask and to answer should i say um so yeah i suppose that my answer is that that it's really complicated but i think 
a big part of it is this athlete slash teammate relationship with each other um, and the way that we speak about performance is a, is a big part of it. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think, I think it is possible, um, but it's going to, it's a long way away because we need to basically beat out all this like negative, like all these, these, this culture that, that sport is in of yeah. like, yeah, if you're not, if you're not doing exactly what the best in the world's doing, then you're a bad person or, um, if you're not doing what your coach is doing, then you're a bad person. I think, yeah, I think, and I, I think steps are being made, aren't they? I mm. mean, we're trying to do our bit, but on top of that, the conversation is a, la- a lot louder. I feel, I think it, it's out there. People are talking about more taboo issues, more issues that have had a lot of stigma attached in the past. Um, and I think it, it is helping, but how do we actually change what have become very ingrained, mm. almost like prejudices that sometimes we don't even realize we hold or we think, um, and they've just become so, I guess, just widespread mm. that you, you question how, yeah, how do we change it? But I think we'll get there. Hopefully. Yeah, no, I, 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 I definitely think we will get there. Um, but yeah, I, again, I, I think, I think early, early stuff is so important. Like when you're a kid, because you learn so much when you're when you're a like when you're young and you learn how you perceive things and how you like relate to the world. Um, and yeah, and it, it, a really important part of it is that the, again, I'm using that salutogenic with the salutogenic foundations that those foundations of how you can cope with things based off of your past experiences pays such a huge role. And that I think because of that, we need to treat some people differently than others. Um, or at least, at least come up with a system that helps those people who may not be able to, because there is actually, I, I watched a, a ted talk recently um I, I can't remember the person's name but it was in scotland and he was talking about this salutogenic stuff and he was saying how you know there's actual evidence that if you grow up in a more kind of chaotic upbringing from a young age your i think it's your hypothalamus in your brain is smaller or, or is affected in some way and it actually seems to um mean that or seems to link with the the inability to deal with emotional turmoil or kind of distress um so there is actually like physical like some people don't want to believe in the psychology side of it you know, there is actual physical evidence of it as well um and it's something we definitely need to look into more i think it just shows though doesn't it you know how and this is why i you know i feel sorry for anybody who has listened to us and listened to however much we do put out there on the podcast whoever gets to the end i have a lot of respect for you and um, <laughs> i think you've got lost along the way but i think what it shows is quite how many areas this does tap into and that's why i can understand now why in my first ever conference i went to probably a week into my phd i remember speaking to quite a physiologically focused um researcher who very much just looks at the objective you know the numbers and again i have a lot of respect for them i hate numbers um <laughs> and she just said to me um oh god you're going to try and look into the psychology of reds absolute minefield don't envy you there and i know exactly what she means now and you know i'm going to still keep pushing on and still try and understand and highlight what i can but it just shows quite how complex these things are and how many different things as you say a lot across someone's life course can come into this mix and determine whether they they can go on and have a really healthy space with their sport or their exercise or whatever else it is that they're focusing on or whether that might be a bit more of a bumpy road um and it's 
yeah, my, my problem is wanting to solve all of it <laughs> and therefore trying to understand everything all in one, which is a bit impossible. So it's good to at least collaborate and share ideas um, and see what, what some people know, what others don't. And that's where, that's where we do start to make um, steps forward, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Um, I was going to ask you now about what you think your your work means going forward, but I suppose we kind of touched on that here. I'm, I'm interested in, um, do you think that, I don't know if this is something you had already thought about, but there are already some models around um, reds and stuff. Do you think there's a possibility that you could come up with some kind of psychological model of the yeah, mechanisms involved? I mean, I would like to think yes. And I will probably present, I'll try and keep it limited, um, but in my thesis, a few infographics that my research I feel have communicated. Like I am a very visual person and I have countless PowerPoint slides of diagrams or flowcharts of me making sense of my data, which I don't want to, you know, I think it would take a lot of work and again, maybe collaboration, but I think I have the basis of a, a bit of a model to describe why certain people might get into this state and yes it won't touch on probably 50 or 60 percent of what might go on for other people but it's at least brought the athlete experience to the forefront I've asked people you know individuals for what their lived experience is and that has told me a little bit more about why you know they've got into this space of reds and I think what it has done is help to identify essentially on the REDS model, for those who aren't familiar, there is this bi-directional arrow. So we've got this health model, we've got this performance model, and all of the circles around the, the central hub uh, have an arrow going in that say, you know, low energy availability can cause this effect, you know, to result in REDS. However, there's a psychological arrow that is bi-directional, so it goes in both directions, and it says psychological issues could precede REDS, so someone could have a pre-existing eating disorder, depression, psychological stress, that means they find themselves in a state of REDS or REDS in and of itself, you know, this psychophysiological issue could cause its own psychological consequences. Mm. And I've done all three of my studies now that the data collection is done for my PhD. And I do personally feel that I've come some way in highlighting both sides of that arrow, if that makes sense. So there's a hell of a lot hell of a lot of work that needs to be done and obviously my interpretation is just my singular interpretation and I've got my own biases got my own experiences that come into it and that I have to be aware of but I think it's a step towards a sort of model so long-winded answer but I think I've done my little bit and that it will take several others probably numerous others to develop their own and contribute their own research but I think it is something that needs to be certainly added to that current model of REDS or even to stand alone to show quite quite how important it is and how it does integrate with these physical effects of REDS. So yeah, maybe, let's say, give it a few, few years, maybe a couple of years and we might have a, a psychological diagram um, that would be that would be awesome um and I'm, i yeah I'm, I'm excited to to see what comes out of that yeah. so um thank you so much for being on i'm going to i'm going to now close with our final three questions that i ask everyone i can't i can't remember if, I, if i've sent these to you or if you've heard them on other podcasts or not I but i have but i've listened ooh. like you know through to the end of most yeah. of your podcasts well it's, it's been a recent thing so it might it might not have seen the ones recently um these are completely off topic from what we're talking about but i like to ask them to everyone now um, so question one, 
Are you ready? Mm-hmm. One person, either real or fictional, who has inspired you in your life? I usually am really quick at answering things, but that's tough. I want, so I don't, I want to be either really deep or really witty. (laughs) Who has inspired me in my life? Oh man, that's really tough. I don't know. That's terrible. This is the sort of thing I was asked to like write an essay about when I was probably (laughs) young. The hard, that's why I, why I put them in, because I think the, the hard. It's really hard, because I ended up doing it about my uncle, who I love dearly. And if he listens to this podcast um, and this is kept in, then, you know, um, I need to reiterate that he's brilliant and very inspirational. But I remember doing like a project about him and then thinking, oh, he's just a, you know, regular guy. Should have <laughs> with someone a bit more exciting. I don't know. <laughs> I might have to come back to that one. Come back to um, it. Like, yeah, edit like the third. Bit okay, in the third okay. <laughs> it's okay, it's okay. And we'll, we'll, maybe, maybe someone will pop into your head as we do the other ones. Yeah. Okay, let's see how you do on this one. Question okay. two. A moment in your life that you didn't like at the time, but looking back, the positives came from it. Mm. So a moment like does it have to be like a really specific moment or like a period of time it's an open question up to you i'm going to say there that i had um a period of time um in probably about three years ago i was living in london what i perceived was going to be like you know this bright lights big city life it's my city I'm like so independent and anonymous I'm going to be who I want to be um and arguably it was actually probably the toughest time ever for my mental health um but I think it was a point where it took me to where I am now and taught me lessons that I wouldn't have otherwise learned and it was one of those kind of necessary periods in life that you have to go through in order to kind of shape who you really are and you find out who you really are. So I had a period of time where I just felt really reckless, really like I didn't know what I was doing um, and didn't know who I was. And then, I don't know, now I'm losing my stuff. No, it's not very inspirational. I don't think we should keep this one in. <laughs> no. It's rubbish. It's rubbish. That's it's good. We'll keep, we're keeping that rubbish. in. No, don't. It's embarrassing. People just think that's really depressing slash doesn't make any sense. But it's a time where like during it, you just feel so rubbish. And even when you think back to it, it doesn't bring up nice feelings, mm-hmm. but you kind of know without it, you wouldn't be, you wouldn't kind of have the clarity on things. You wouldn't have confidence about certain things that you do now. So yeah. the thing is, there's no juicy information there. there was no, no fun it's, story. it's good. That's good. It's, it's, it doesn't have to be a, doesn't have to be, no one has to explode or like, you know, no, you know, oh, aliens have to come from the sky. It's just. I want funny answers. I'll be thinking about these all day now. <laughs> <laughs> like, Sorry. Oh. I apologize. Um, but we're keeping that one in. Question three and arguably the hardest one. So okay. be ready. A phrase to live by. I think I recently had this in my Instagram bio. I might have taken it out. It's a bit cringe, but I do believe in it. Don't always believe what you think. Now that sounds a bit confusing, but what I'm trying to say there is sometimes our mind can run away with us and 
the feelings we have towards ourselves or opinions about certain things aren't necessarily set in stone and mm. factual. Um, feelings can change, thoughts can change, like experiences can shape what we think. Um, it isn't always necessarily true. And although you said that these are like separate from what we've talked about today, I'd say to those people who are listening, who are in a space where their thoughts are horrible, they're self-critical, they're telling themselves that they're an awful person and perhaps they shouldn't, you know, be here. And, you know, that isn't necessarily truth. So you shouldn't always believe what you think. That's a, a wonderful, wonderful one. Um, it actually reminds me of, I, I, I don't know if, if I've mentioned this in the podcast you've heard before, but actually I write poetry. Um, and one of my poems that I've written, that reminds me of, which is, it goes, um, we must believe in what we believe in order to think about what we no longer believe and laugh in its stupid face. And it's about the idea that, that everything that we believe now, mm. we, we have this, these ideas about how we are, who we are, what we, what we think about. And it's basically a poem about the idea that we often, maybe it's not really related to what you were saying, I suppose, but it just kind of sound the wording sounds the same, but it's related to the idea that often we'll, we'll like, people belittle people for not knowing something or for thinking or thinking differently to what they think. Um, but for you to think about what they're thinking about is stupid. You have to believe something. And in the past you believe stuff that you think now is stupid. Um, so basically just be a bit more humble. I think I followed it. <laughs> I'm probably going to take that out now. Cause that's really embarrassing. No, no, I, just... Don't think you should. I just think I do feel sorry. For people because they've 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 had to hear me trying to work my own thoughts out <laughs> and then an analogy that probably needs writing down and reading a few times to make sense as well well and it's a powerful one i tell you what because because we're both feel embarrassed about what we said i'll keep <laughs> in my awful explanation of my poem that i read and can you let me off the hook with the insp inspirational person because i just can't choose one but also like none are springing to mind, which makes me sound like a really like <laughs> person. You know I mean, whereas I just want to pick a good one. Like loads of people inspire me every day. I can't mm. think of one. And therefore, if we keep this in, they'll just be like, oh, no one inspires her. She's just inspired by herself. And blah, she, blah, blah, blah. she hates it. But the thing is, if I do that, people hear me say question two and question three, but there'll be no question one. Not to put you on the spot. <laughs> Can I be really, can I really suck up and just say yeah. that you inspire me? Oh, that's the best one yet. My, even my doorbell went when you said that as like a but, moment of like, yeah. yay. I wanted to be witty. I wanted to be funny. But essentially, like I was inspired when I came across this podcast and I listened to some of these. I was inspired by your ability to take on what I imagine are lots of difficult experiences and put that into something that can help other people and can resonate with others and essentially support them in similar or different, you know, issues or concerns that they have themselves. So you are my inspiration. And hopefully that gives me like a, a guest gold star or something. Yeah. 100% favorite guest already. Um, also that was a really lovely moment and my dog completely ruined it by barking throughout <laughs> the whole thing. Um, so Again, thanks Millie. Perfect, hey? <laughs> yeah. The Maya Minds dog, Millie. Um, yeah. Thank you very much, Rachel, for coming on. Um, I think you did wonderfully with those last three oh. questions, even though you said you didn't. Um, and it's been a really interesting chat. And I, I felt like I could have kept asking questions for ages, but I feel like we have to cut it off at some stage. Um, so here we are. I hope you enjoyed yourself. 
I did. I very much did. I just hope that I've made some sort of sense or at least offered kind of a nugget of information that's perhaps helpful to even just one person. And if, if that's just you, then I'm happy with that as well. You, I can guarantee that everyone listening got stuff out of that because you were you were you were a lot clearer than you can <laughs> seem to consider yourself um everyone listening thanks again for being here and tagging along if you've made it this far we're both very proud of you um <laughs> and i will see you at the next episode bye thank you so much for listening to that episode here at Maya Minds, we're trying to raise awareness for all the things that we speak about in this podcast. So please, if you can, give it a share. Each and every one of you has the potential to help us with that. Also, if you want to check out mayaminds.com, please do. You can see all our social media things on there. And we'd love to have you contributing more as a part of our community. Thank you.